Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. Today's episode is brought to you by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the program at support.greatdetectives.net. Well, now it's time to get into today's episode of The Big Guy, kind of right in the middle of the program's run. Here now is The Case of the Villainous Friend, from August 27, 1950. I'm 20 foot 5 in my stocking feet. How big are your shoes? What size you wear? Size 902 in a triple Z. That's our daddy, the big guy. <laughs> NBC presents The Big Guy, another in the series of adventures of a very unusual detective, Joshua Sharp. Joshua Sharp works for his clients on a strictly cash basis to provide for the needs of his nearest and dearest, Josh Jr. and his daughter, Debbie. To these two, Sharp is both father and mother. To his clients, he is a good detective. To Josh and Debbie, he's the friendly magician, the fabulous hero, the giant among giants, the big guy. Tonight's adventure with the big guy. The Case of the Villainous Friend. A man alone, trying to bring up a pair of youngsters, runs into a lot of unexpected problems. One of my most unexpected was a sudden shortage of bedtime stories. After all, you can read Grimm's fairy tales only a few hundred times before the kids begin to tire of them. And that goes for Hans Christian Andersen and all the rest of the Once Upon a Timers. I'd reached that point with Josh and Debbie, and they were getting so bored with witches and sleeping beauties that finally, for all our sakes, I tried tapping a new source. I bought a copy of Tales from Shakespeare. It was an immediate hit. In fact, it was too big a hit. That first night, I read The Tempest and Two Gentlemen from Verona, and still they didn't want me to stop. What's the next one, Daddy? Well, we'll let the next one wait, baby. You, you and Debbie have to go to sleep. But what's the name of it? Just the name of it? Uh, it's, uh... It's the tragedy of Othello. Now you just close your eyes and... Well, what about him, Daddy? Yes, Daddy, who was he? Well, he was a man, Josh. Oh, and what was the tragedy? Well, he was married to a woman named Desdemona who loved him very much. Is that a tragedy? No. The tragedy came about because he had a friend. A friend named Iago. Yes. And Iago came to Othello and told him that Desdemona didn't love him at all. 
And he said she loved somebody else. He was bad, wasn't he, Daddy? Oh, very. And what happened here? Well, next he... Uh, next, a couple of shrewd articles who are trying to worm another story out of their hard-working father give him a kiss and say goodnight. And it was a good night under my roof. But elsewhere, things were happening that were fated finally to intrude on my routine and make a shambles of it. The center of these events was a boy, a boy named Frank Gollard. I'd snagged the lad in question two years ago, after he'd assisted in the armed robbery of a filling station and committed assault and battery resisting arrest. My action in the matter came as part of my contract with the Mutual Indemnity Insurance Company. And I had been in the courtroom the day the judge passed a ten-year sentence on Frank Gollard. And then, the same evening, while I was telling Josh and Debbie about Othello, inside the drab gray walls of the upstate penitentiary... Lately, Frank. Yeah, I got a letter from Lila last week. Now let's turn in half. What do you say? Yeah, sure, kid. In a minute. Lila. Oh, that's that's a pretty name. Hap. Huh? How come you ask me that? Oh, I uh, heard you tossing around last night. I knew you wasn't sleeping, and I've been thinking about all the guys in this place who got somebody waiting for them. And Wondering where all them somebody's are tonight. <laughs> wondering who she's dancing with and wondering who she's drinking with. Wonder who's the kissing. Shut up. Oh, kid. I told you once, Hap. I was only wondering. She's a clean kid. Clean and sweet and straight. Oh, sure. There's a few good wrens in the world. Maybe you got yourself one of them. You could expect me to guess that now, could you, Frank? Man never knows about a thing like that. Man just never knows. Good night, Hap. You ain't sore on me, are you, Frank? I said good night. I don't want you to be sore on me, you hear? You hear me, Frank? Okay, I'm not sore about you. Okay, Hap. Good night, baby. Hap was his cellmate, and Hap was his friend. Big, slow, paternal Hap McLean. In for life. And not a man to talk much about the way he was to spend the rest of his natural days. It was mutual friendship, and the two found a degree of peace in each other's companionship. It was a peace, however, that was ripped to shreds with the suddenness of a thunderclap one hot night in early August. Hap had smuggled a newspaper from the prison library into the cell, and young Gollard was lying on his bunk, turning the pages. Hey, Hap! Uh, What's the matter? What's eating you, Frank? Hey, listen to this. What cute lovely whose maid is doing a ten-year stretch for armed robbery is now seeing the town inside out with more than one slick-haired Romeo? 
Even while I was on trial, she was rocking no, me. Oh, no, kid, take it. She easy. was, she was. While I took the ride to this pile of stinking stone, while I prayed for every night, she was selling me out. Midnight till morning, night after night. Oh, wait, don't worry. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Listen to me, will you, Frank? Listen to happenings. Oh, baby. I But he had no choice about taking it. With his friend, Hap's help, he calmed down and went on with the monotonous routine of his daily life behind the walls of the prison. And then, late one night, weeks later, in the cell he shared with Hap McLean, he found that he didn't have to take it anymore. Frank, hey kid, wake up and listen. Yeah. Listen, I... old Hap, and listen good. You gotta get out of here. Okay. You're eating yourself alive. You gotta move loose from this place. Oh, but I can't. I can't. I'm not up for parole. Forget for the parole, baby. Hap's got it all fixed fine. You got it fixed? Yeah. Take a look, kid. Where'd you get the gun? Out of the arsenal, baby. It took me three months and a lot of doing, but I got it. And the trustee, the one in the laundry office, he's going to leave the laundry door unlocked for 20 minutes tomorrow night. There'll be a truck just outside. How did you do this, Hap? Oh, look, I've been in this can 12 years. There are ways, baby. There are always ways. You come with me? No, no. I got nothing with the outside world, kid. Apple rest easy right here. You go on out. You can still hate. And that means you can still live. Enjoy yourself. Don't get yourself snagged, baby. It was at 11 o'clock the next night that the guard changed. Two minutes before this chosen hour, Hap McLean stood crucial guard for the appearance of any official. And the boy prepared for his venture. Where do you make for? Her apartment. You figure Lila'll show? I'll wait till she does. What? And get nabbed off waiting? Forget it. Now look, I'll get the grapevine and let her know that you're coming and tell her to stand by for you. There it is. Eleven o'clock, kid. Okay. Play your cagey now, baby. Happen to be around, look out for you. No point in saying. Thank you, Hap. Go on, you punk. I'll brain you. The boy was halfway across the prison yard when... Go! Go where you are! And the shaft of a giant searchlight struck him like the lunge of an angry lion. Darting out of its glare, he took cover behind an angle of the wall. The boy fired at the guard on the watchtower. He made a dash for the laundry building and found the door unlocked as scheduled. The truck roared along the back roads on the all-night drive to the city while the state was springing into action to retake Frank Gollard. Retake him, dead or alive. Next morning, when I walked into my place of business, my own personal private eye, Risky Skinner, was waiting for me, as usual. But today, Risky wasn't alone. A young city cop, Tom Saunders by name, had dropped in to tell me about the Gollard escape. 
He was little more than a rookie, this cop. Green, but enterprising. So, uh, knowing you were the man who put the finger on him in the first place two years ago, Sharp, it occurred to a few of the boys at Precinct Headquarters that you might have ideas about retaking Frank Gollard. They figure you dig up a few angles about the punks that could be maybe useful, Commander. Well, I'll be glad to do all I can. Uh, tell me, how much action is underway now? Well, the uh, state's being dragged from end to end. Even the Coast Guard's been alerted on this one. Any results yet? <laughs> so far, we've drawn a goose egg. Uh, just a second. Yeah. Sharp speaking. This is uh, Lila Goddard, Mr. Sharp. What? Frank Gollard's wife. Where are you? I'm not calling from home, Mr. Sharp. I'm afraid to go there. Why? I'll tell you why. I got a call last night from the grapevine at Goldfield Prison. Yeah? Frank is on his way to my place. On the way to his own home? Hello. Hello. Mrs. Gollard. Mrs. Gollard. Hello. Hello! The wire was dead, but the news had been sensational. Leaving Risky to try to check back on the call, I found Mrs. Gollard's address in the city listings, latched onto Patrolman Saunders, and headed for Gollard's home. By 25 of 10, we were in his apartment. I was at the window and Saunders by the door. Hey, Sharp. Okay, okay, I see him. He's coming in. Great. Get ready for business. Let's uh, wait for him in the hall. All right. Easy with that door, Saunders. Here he comes. Let him get to the first landing. And for Pete's sake, stop shaking. There he is. He's carrying a gun. Hey, Saunders. No, wait. But I was too late. The green rookie, firing in panic, missed. And Frank Gollard went crashing back down the stairs, through the door, and out into the street. I didn't have to be told that once loose, Gollard would head for his wife. After all, Lila had tipped me off, and he probably knew that she was the only person on earth who had been wise to his whereabouts. The immediate deal, therefore, was to contact her without delay. It was just about this time there came a knock on the door of Warden Jameson's office at the state penitentiary, and a cell block guard by the name of Spears walked in with the announcement that somebody wanted to talk to the warden. Who is it, Spears? Prisoner from cell block A. He yammered till I went to see what was wrong. Yes, yeah, Spears. Well, then he told me he could retake Gollard for us, nothing flat. And I can't, Warden. Honest, so help me now. I'm not kidding. I know exactly what I'm talking about. I told about. you to wait outside. All right, Spears. To... All right, I'll talk to him. Okay, Warden. You say you can recapture Frank Gollard? And be back before morning. Who are you? Number 5,200. I mean your name. Oh, my na uh, name is uh, Half McLean. I presume, McLean, that you can only perform this remarkable feat if you allow to be left out of the prison alone. Who wants alone? Send Spears with me with a gun, a dozen guns. Who cares? Now, look, I'm only trying to do the right thing here, Mr. Warden. That's all I'm interested I in. I see. All right. We'll send Spears with you. And you won't regret it. I'll tell you what. And I'm telling you something, McLean. If you succeed in this mission... I'll see what can be done to secure you a full and complete pardon. No, you mean it. Don't you think you deserve it? Well, I 
Yes, I did figure something like that. Yeah, I imagined you did, McLean. Beard. Yes, sir. You'll take McLean into the city. Let him do exactly as he thinks best. <laughs> McLean, informer and temporary public hero, passed out of the prison walls on his errand of black treachery. Meanwhile, we were still ransacking the city for Lila, and as it turned out, Frank Gollard was doing the same. In the phone booth of a hole-in-the-wall cigar store on a side street... Yeah, she must be in a summer car to get rid of you. Yeah, that's it. Probably where she's hiding out. Give me Riverview 534. Riverview 534. Thank you, sir. Hello? Is this you, Lila? Oh, Frank. How are you, Frank, honey? I'm fine. What's happening, Frank? I'm looking for you, Lila. Oh, honey, I just turned on the radio and heard the news. I just woke up. I've been asleep. Why did you go up to Riverview to sleep, Lila? matter? Nothing. I just wanted to see you. Where are you? I'll come right into the city. Uh, stay where you are. I'll come to you. All right, sweetheart. You remember how to get here? Yeah, I remember. You were uh, alone, Lila? Yes. A girlfriend was staying with me up until last night, but she had to get back to town. Oh, honey, I wish we could be together. I wish we never had to leave here. Stay where you are till I get there, baby. Maybe you never will. Feeling for the gun butt in his pocket, Frank Gollard ducked out onto the sidewalk and started the tortuous journey toward his final long-sought vengeance. Later in the afternoon, back at the office, Saunders and I were checking the shortwave reports. You know, it, it baffles me a little, Sharp. And what does? Gollard's wife turning him in. Why? She's a gunman's doll, isn't she? Uh, no, 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 not quite. Anyway, she's not running true to form. Why not? A word around has been that she's almost arranged for his parole. Strange, huh? Yeah, very. Commander. Yeah, Risky? Well, a little luck at last. Well, that we can use. <laughs> I think I found out where Mrs. Gowett phoned you from. Yeah? But well, I'm afraid it won't help any. Seems she rang up from a phone booth. Phone booth, huh? Where? In a place called Banner's Tavern over on Time Street, near the river. You know it? I said, do you know it, Commander? Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know it. Risky. Yeah, Commander? Go get me a cap and a sweater. Huh? A cap and a sweater. What do you want them for? To wear. I'm going to Banner's Tavern, Risky, and I want to look like one of the boys. <laughs> Banner's Tavern at the foot of a wharf on the river had never been what might be called a pride to the community. And tonight was no exception. The clientele I saw at once was entirely male, except for one blonde cutie who sat alone over a glass of beer, a bright red scar of a smile on her hard face. Well, what are you looking at? Well, what do you think, honey? Beat it. I got a boyfriend coming. Yeah? From where? That would be telling. Well, how's about a little drink till he shows? Well, I'll... <laughs> Go ahead. What do you have? How about a gin and water? Why not? 
What's your name, beautiful? Esther. That's all? Esther Moody. Moody? Mm -hmm. Esther Moody? Uh, you ain't the doll used to kick around with half McLean. You know half? Like that. We used to operate together in North Jersey. Ah, <laughs> oh, what do you know? How's he doing these days? He's in stir. Didn't you know that? For how long? Hard to say right now. There's some kind of caper in the works. Yeah? I've been trying to figure it out all night. What's the lowdown? Well, uh, lean over here. Yeah. About 11 o'clock last night, Hop sent me the word over the grapevine. Uh-huh. And he tells me to call up a certain private eye this morning, announce myself as Mrs. Gullard, and say that Frank is on his way to his wife's flat. What do you think? What do you think? I think I trusted you mighty fast, Hanson. How about that little drink? Uh, how about better? Better? How about a little pinch? What? Rough stuff, lady. I'm the private eye you handed that runaround to this morning. I got her to headquarters. Not, however, without a set of fingernail marks down my cheek. And walked in on a bit of exciting news. It seemed the postal clerk at a place called Riverview had phoned in, giving Lila Gollard's whereabouts. The address, 21 Canton Lane, at which street number Frank Gollard had just arrived. Oh, Frank, Frank. You sounded so strange over the phone. I, I, I don't understand. What have I done? You really want me to tell you, Lila? You called the cops and told them where they could pick me up. I did, Frank? Yeah, you. Frank! Frank, how could I? I didn't even know you'd broken out. McLean got word to you at the apartment last night and told you where I'd be. But I wasn't there. I wasn't even there. Oh, that's an easy out. You turn me in and then you run for the tall timber. Frank. Frank, do you honestly believe I do that? I know you did it, you hypocritical swine. Oh, oh darling. Oh, darling. Yeah. Hello, kid. Hey. Yeah, not all of it. I'm right here at home base. Yes, so I figured. Hap? Yeah, baby. You contacted my wife last night, didn't you? Well, sure. Sure thing. Why do you ask? I won't ask again. I gotta hang up now. Well, just a second, Frank. Uh, look, uh, I'm in the alley behind Banner's Tavern on the side by the river. You know where that is? Yeah, sure. Well, then beat it down and see me as soon as you can. I got a pal along with to see you safe out of the States on a strictly credit basis. Okay? Yeah, thanks. Thanks a million. I'll see you, pal. You cheap, lying, rotten, deceitful tramp. Oh, no. No, Frank, no. Not a gun. Shut up. This is beyond begging and no place for talk. If you've got prayers to say, say them. There won't be any time later. I won't need time for prayers, Frank. I'd die before I hurt you. I don't mind losing my life, Frank. All I regret is I'll never see you again. Never. Never. It was at that moment that Risky and I drove up in front of 21 Canton Lane and heard the shots as we ran up the path to the house. 
That was it, Commander? Yeah. Gullard. Gullard. You blasted fool. What did you do, you crazy punk? I just killed a liar, a stooly, and a cheat. Let's go now with our questions, huh? First, there's got to be a few answers given, boy. Such as? Such as? Did you know this cheat here had just about arranged to get you paroled at the next meeting of the board? You're a liar. Too bad for your peace of mind, I'm not. Not when I said that, nor when I say this. Your wife didn't call me and inform on you today, Gollard. She did, she did. No, she didn't. The call I got came from a woman named Esther Moody, who made it to help weave this net you're caught in. Moody? Esther Moody? Who's that? What's she got to do with me? She's got nothing to do with you. But I think maybe her boyfriend has. A boyfriend? A guy by the name of Hap McLean. <laughs> For a moment, he stared at me like a wounded animal, and then his eyes closed slowly. He shook his head wearily, as if to come out of a sick dizziness, and neither Risky nor I caught the movement of his hand as he blasted the globe dangling from the ceiling, plunging, plunging us into blind blackness as he crashed out through the window. Nearer dawn, in the alley behind Banner's Tavern, It's getting chilly waiting here, McLean. Where's your boy? Easy, Spears. Take it easy. He's on his way to it. Yeah. There he comes. You sure it's him? Can't you see, Flathead? Hey, give me a gun. Let me take him in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, thanks. Now, duck behind the lamppost so I don't see you too soon. Hot. Here I am, kid. How you making it, huh? Killed her, Hap. Yeah, sure, sure. That's what you had to do. Come on. We'll go in banners and have a few snorts. That'll set you up right, eh? Hey, Hap. Yeah. Where's the pal who was going to help me lamb out of the stake? Oh, uh, well, he had to go, Frank. He'll be back. I figured he was back now. That's him behind the lamppost, ain't it, Hap? I gotta get him, too. Kid. Kid, how much blood do you want on your hands, baby? Just a little more. Just a little more, you greasy, crummy stool pigeon. Pat McLean took a look into the empty, cold eyes of the boy and suddenly bolted down the alley. At the corner, McLean swung abruptly and fired. The bullet hit, and he waited for Frank Dollar to go down. But he waited in vain. The boy came toward him, head lowered, staggering. Baby, baby, don't be sore on me. I don't want you sore on me, Frank. As he spoke, McLean fired again. And found himself with an empty gun in his hand. And he blinked unbelievingly as the boy swayed with the anguish of the shot. And then, steadily, he plowed forward. Half crazy with fear, McLean stumbled into the darkness until he came to world's end at the edge of the wharf behind the tavern. Oh, baby, oh, Frank, you've got to listen to your hap. You've got to listen to your happy. You can't be sore on me, baby. I'm for you, honest. Oh, don't shoot, kid. Let's talk it out there. <laughs> Thank you.
Frank Gollard, looking like a child asleep, was dead. Stretched out on the rotten planking of the wharf when we found him. Josh and Debbie were in bed when I climbed the stairs to our flat. And knowing nothing of what was going on inside of me, they clamored for the next story in the book. The next story was Othello. And as I read the tale of the tragic death of Desdemona and Othello and the final undoing of Iago, I shuddered with a kind of recognition. At the end of the narrative, there was silence. Then... And Othello killed himself, too? Yes, baby. Gee, I don't see why he had to die. He didn't know what he was doing. It's all Iago's fault, wasn't it, Daddy? Yes. Yes, essentially, it was Iago's fault. Why didn't he just explain and go on living? Maybe he didn't want to, honey. Oh, you mean because he'd lost Desdemona? Is that it? Well, that's part of it. Well, what's the other part, Daddy? Don't you know? You mean he'd lost Iago, too? Yes, baby. You get the point. He'd also lost his friend. <laughs> Joshua Sharp, detective, works for his clients on a strictly cash basis to provide for the needs of his nearest and dearest, Josh Jr. and Debbie. To them, he's the friendly magician, the fabulous hero, the giant among giants, the big guy. has presented another in a series of adventures of The Big Guy, played by Henry Calvin and featuring David Anderson as Josh Jr. and Joan Laser as Debbie. The script was written by Peter Barry and directed by Thomas Madigan. The music was composed and played by Jack Ward. Members of the cast were Jim Stevens, Merrill E. Joles, Peggy Lobbin, Bill Zuckert, Linda Watkins, Lyle Sudrow, and Sandy Strauss as Risky Skinner. Your announcer is Peter Roberts. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. The American album of familiar music returns tonight over most of these NBC stations, presenting the finest in Sunday evening musical listening designed for the entire family. On Sunday, September 10th, Theater Guild on the Air will be back with more hour-long presentations from Broadway and Hollywood, featuring the most famous and talented artists of stage, screen, and radio. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Welcome back. You know, his soulmate with that use of baby, baby all the time kind of reminded me of Dick Vitale from uh, ESPN's uh, college basketball uh, many, many years back. Uh, this episode raises a number of interesting uh, issues from the writing uh, standpoint. I, I just could not see them. Uh, sending Pappy um, in with a guard, promising a, pri- a pardon, and telling the guard to do whatever he said, even though he is one of the more memorable characters uh, we've had uh, 
on the program. And of course, for our, uh, as a 21st century people, uh, here in the 21st century, we may find the idea of sitting down and reading your kids the story of Othello as a bedtime story, perhaps a little bit um, of an odd choice. There are actually, uh, it should be noted, were, were a couple of books uh, that were in existence out at the time of this um, uh, program, uh, uh, one by Edith uh, Edith Nesbitt called Beautiful Stories from Shakespeare, uh, and uh, the other by uh, Mary Lamb, uh, which did actually look at uh, uh, Shakespeare told a level more that uh, children could understand it. And it is somewhat interesting. Um, we tend to think of the 1950s as a period where kids were pretty well protected from negativity, um, harm, and some might even say uh, reality. Uh, but in some ways, uh, particularly with kids who are, you know, 12 and under, uh, we've uh, kind of changed our standards a little bit um, in terms of uh, allowing, of not allowing some things that would have been perfectly uh, acceptable on juvenile programs in the 1950s. I mean, The Adventures of Superman was a uh, children's show, but I've lost count of the number of... Uh, now to listener comments and feedback, and we have a listener voicemail on that vexing issue of a composer's name. Hi, Adam. This is Tim in Tucson, Arizona. And I believe the way you pronounce the name of the composer that you mentioned is Shostakovich. And I guess my four years of college Russian has finally come in handy for something 30 years later. Take care. Thanks, Ken. Well, uh, and thank you for providing the name of Shostovich. And uh, your four years of college Russian apparently did better than my one semester. Uh, thanks so much for the comment, Ken. Rick also uh, adds that uh, Shostovich... Uh, also wrote The Gadfly, used on Riley, Ace of Spies. So, there you go. And thank you so much, both Ken and Rick. That will actually do it for today. Join us back here tomorrow. Uh, we continue the Amy Bradshaw matter. In the meanwhile, send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and uh, become one of our friends on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Radio Detectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.